All right, guys, this is me recording. I'm going to be on a podcast um, today talking about Hughes about inclusive leadership and um, wanted to record this uh, while um, having this conversation. So um, sit tight. I'm looking forward to it. So in this recording, you likely will not be able to hear Bob unless I have him on speaker, um, which I might do. Um, But um, we shall see. For those of you wondering, um, I wrote this book chapter last year, Inclusive Leadership, to be included uh, in a book called Breaking the Zero Sum Game. And um, this particular um, book chapter was written uh, with the idea of, of how do we create inclusive communities looking at existing structures created by nonprofit organizations, particularly collaborative structures. I walked through a couple of principles that uh, I thought were pretty useful and uh, looked at also the the critical importance of collaborative structures and how they work in nonprofit communities and how it's made a difference in achieving results.
Hey, Bob, how are you? Okay. No, it's quite all right. It's quite all right. Thank, thank you. I am actually in Connecticut, on the east coast of the the U.S. Yeah. Can you hear me? Can you hear me well? Okay. Yes, it is. <laughs> but it's quite all right. <laughs> no, it's just fine. It's just fine. Now, is it evening time in, in in your side of the world? Okay. Okay. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Sounds good. Uh, no, I'm pretty good.
Sure. So um, William Clark, I have a doctorate in strategic leadership from Regent University down in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, currently, I reside uh, in Connecticut. I live outside of Hartford, uh, but I'm an executive at a nonprofit based in Connecticut, uh, about an hour away from Hartford in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And what, in, in our work, we oversee workforce uh, development activities around the state. And more specifically, my portfolio includes workforce development training uh, around the state. We have a number of offices that I oversee. And so we engage customers uh, at whatever level they are uh, to ensure that they have the resources and tools that they need uh, to, to do their work. Now, my doctorate is in strategic leadership. And the question some folks ask me was, how, how does that connect to any of the work that I do, um, whether it's in a nonprofit space now or whether I was, you know, in the space I was in before, which was government. And ultimately, you know, what we focus on is how to lead organizations and groups of people to accomplish a single goal or a number of goals. And that's applicable in any arena. Uh, the principles are pretty much the same. And so certainly as I oversee my portfolio of work, uh, there's a lot of relevance in terms of leading the organization to achieve our stated goals, uh, meet the needs and goals of our customers and our stakeholders and funders. But then also what I've noticed that has been a big change for us is uh, certainly changing the culture of the organization so that the focus on success and performance is paramount. And what's the proper attitude we all should have to achieve that goal with a change of a culture? Mm hmm. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So the name of the nonprofit is Career Resources. Uh, we prepare folks to get back to work. And one of the things that we've been talking about recently, which is kind of uh, kind of the founding mantra of the organization, is making sure that we provide a restored dignity to families by providing access to work. And we, we believe that nothing more important than anything else uh, to a family is work, consistent work as family sustaining wages. The agency at large operates a number of what we call American job centers here in America, which is kind of a one-stop place where folks can go if they're unemployed or they're looking for employment and they can get all the resources that they need. In addition, um, you know, there are a number of programs that we offer, such as the one that I oversee, um, the Strive Connecticut program, which works on job readiness attitudes prior to pursuing work and for the effort of sustaining work once folks get there. There are other services we provide around reentry services for folks coming out of prison who are looking to become employed, uh, assistance for single uh, moms or single heads of households, uh, young adults, which is a big piece of our work nowadays, and any other customer um, who may not have barriers but just are in need of support. That's what we're there for. Okay.
Yep. Sure. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's quite all right. Well, one of the things that caught my attention um, was the, the the topic of the book, which is, you know, transforming societies, breaking the zero sum game, transforming societies to inclusive leadership. And um, for, for me, I think looking at what it means to break the cycle for communities around the world and how do they garner the power to do so connected to that. I connected to that and I connected to the topic of inclusive leadership. And one of the things that was interesting to me was looking at how we do it in America in a number of um, subset ways and subset communities. And for me, uh, obviously, I spend a lot of my time in a nonprofit community. And so I look at what we do uh, as, as a community, not having enough resources, but having a large a number of needs to meet with our customers. It's reflective. And there's a lot of parallels to that, to what the book was intending to to do. And I felt that I've seen a number of strategies that might be helpful in identifying inclusive leadership tips and tricks that could be uh, critical in making a difference in any community around the world. And that's what got me interested in wanting to at least participate in this project. And so it led me down this path to talk about inclusive leadership through the lens of collaborative structures. What we are seeing now in a nonprofit space is that funders are no longer interested in being the sole funder of a single organization, right? So organization A cannot rely on funder uh, A to pay all its bills. Uh, in the event that organization A fails, the funder A is now responsible. So funder A is now telling organization A, well, you need funder A, B, C, D, and E to contribute to the financial sustainability of the work. And in addition, if you're not going to do that, the organizations, the nonprofit itself is now challenged to partner with other organizations to now split dollars given by a specific funder, which is where we get the rise of collaborative structures. And having lived through that and gone through that, seen the challenges and the value of that, for me, it provided a perspective that I thought was interesting to the book. And that is, how could we collide more than one world to overlap and to have this larger impact that benefits a bunch of folks? So now it's no longer a zero-sum game where one group wins and another loses. We all make sacrifices towards uh, meeting our personal goals, right? And knowing that we win in some form or fashion and those of our partners who are a part of this journey will win as well. Yep. It becomes a complex web, 
right, where everybody is kind of interconnected. And what we see as a result of that in the nonprofit community is that you'll see some of the same players a part of a part of the same conversations over and over and over again. So you get to know folks really well. When you translate that to any community, whether it's in the U.S. or the U.K. or around the world where folks are struggling and they're looking for a way to stay connected and to leverage the the, the, the power of their network, just looking at collaborative structures and how they are required, have required us to work together, you can see the natural connection that starts to develop between two organizations or more because now we see each other enough, we participate in enough group activities, we participate in the same meetings, we run in the same circles, we tap into the same funders, and we begin to develop this bond, right? It doesn't work with everybody, but you start to know who your friends and partners are, and that bond becomes critical. So when new funding comes along, you're not looking to develop new relationships. You're going to go back to folks you've been uh, hanging out with or folks you've been in a meeting with to go fight a new fight or to strengthen the fight that you already are engaged in. And when you look at communities that are struggling and trying to put the pieces together, those communities have to look at collaborative structures as a means of removing the zero sum game and looking at win, win, win opportunities for themselves and those they are engaged with. Certainly. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I, I want to be clear for folks who are watching this and, and to say that leadership is critical and always will be critical and positions of leadership are always critical and will and is critical now. But what I espouse in a book is that one, leadership is about influence, regardless of what that influence is, it's influence. And it varies uh, across the board in terms of how people need to be influenced or how they desire to be influenced. So that's number one. But number two, we talk about in the chapter that inclusive leadership is this distributed approach of responsibility uh, to influence the organization, to influence your peers, to influence outcomes. And what I try to get at more specifically is that uh, this reminds me a lot about self-leadership, which is this self-directed effort to influence yourself to do something. Now, in teams, of course, we have our own goals. As a team, we have goals as individuals. And how do you inspire yourself to get over your own barriers to achieve goals that are individualistic and how you connect those individualistic individual individualistic goals to team goals, right? It's the same way in a collaborative structure. The leader who is, let's say the head honcho is responsible for finding out 
what inspires every individual and empowering them to do what they need to do to achieve their own goals so that it impacts and helps the entire team. That's the collaborative approach. And it starts to figure out he, he or she starts to figure out how to braid together everyone's goals and achievements to do something that matters for the entire team. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think that people who are part of the nonprofit community and I've been a part of the for profit community, but the nonprofit community seems to have this heart driven approach to work. And you hear a lot uh, from people that say I I've come to work for a nonprofit because I want to do good and see my good work impact communities and individuals more quickly. Uh, in the for profit community, you don't readily see that because you're serving the corporation at large. And it's kind of like this uh, internal services that are often provided that folks are, are, are kind of uh, adherent to. And then they don't get to see how their work kind of ushers through the organization and out to its customers. And so, yeah, I think. Part of that heart-driven approach by nonprofit team members and leaders uh, kind of puts us in position naturally to want to contribute our own goods and services because we know that we can see the immediate impact right then and there uh, in the lives of our customers. Yep. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So what, what I believe is that organizations need to have transform, transformative leadership experiences at all times um, to really make a significant difference in, uh, in the lives of customers and in the quality of work that's produced uh, by uh, staff members. And so at the end of the day, what I was trying to uh, get at was there needs to be transformational leadership in order for collaborative structures to exist and to thrive. And so as you talked about the four eyes, the first one being idealized influence, people need to have some sort of template or example to look to, to say, I want to be like that person. 
in a collaborative structure, since organizations are in close proximity of each other, that's the best opportunity to set an example of what it means to be a, a collaborative partner, a quality organization, and a serving organization. And so, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to be that template for others to look at. Inspirational motivation. What inspires people? What motivates people to do more or do better? Particularly in Connecticut, you know, one of the challenges we're looking to resolve as a community is how do we collaborate better? How do we put aside our own egos and our own goals to see what's needed for the state or for the respective towns and cities that we're working in? And ideally, uh, in order to do that, what we're what we believe is that people have to be motivated for some good reason to do that. Right. And it's it's personal, if you will. The third one is individual consideration. You know, how can one within a collaborative structure uh, meet the specific considerations or needs or desires of an individual? It's almost like when you have more than one child, you can't parent the same child the same way or the multiple children the same way. You got to you got to parent them unique to their personalities and their goals and their uh, kind of the way they think. And, And it makes parenting more dynamic. In the nonprofit world and the collaborative structures in any organization, it's the same way. How do you personalize the experience? And then lastly, intellectual intellectual stimulation. At the end of the day, Bob, folks need to be stimulated intellectually. Their minds need to be turned on for something. And that something is so unique to every individual. I find myself keep going back to the individualistic element of transformational leadership, of collaborative leadership, but it's true because I think that folks have been used to, particularly in the nonprofit world, to this blanketed approach to leadership and influence that everybody ought to receive my leadership the way I'm giving it and you all need to respond the same way. The reality is we're all different. We're not different just by skin color or culture or place of birth or language. We're different by the way we think. We're different by the way we feel, the experiences that we've had. And as a result, I bring all of those experiences to a collaborative structure, to a work environment. And as a team member, I'm looking for my leader to be somewhat uniquely responsive to me. Because once you figure me out, then you can pull the very best out of me. And that makes for the best collaborative structure possible. Yes, yes. Well, what I was trying to get at is that a self-leader, you're focused on you at the end of the day, right? And I think that that needs to be um, accepted, that we all have a selfish tendency to us, and we should. Because the more selfish I am about my own performance, the more focused I am about doing a better job. But what I was talking about in this specific instance is a part of self-leadership is knowing how to work within a team environment regardless of my personal goals, which is the personal humility, considering my own self, how I fit into a team environment, a collaborative environment, as well as others, 
but then also the middle of the road management practices. And what I was getting at specifically is I can't be a high-end leader or a high-intensity leader when the situation or the environment doesn't call for it. Or I can't be a low-energy or a laissez-faire leader when the situation doesn't call for it. The best approach is to come into a collaborative environment, particularly when you're, you're called to play a team role, and kind of go even kill with the idea of figuring out how do I fit into the situation. Perhaps the situation requires me to be more uh, intense and involved. Perhaps the situation requires me to be less intense and less involved. Regardless, the only way I can make an acceptable um, kind of assessment of what's needed of me is to come in kind of like, you know, parallel to the situation and ease into the situation to determine what I need to contribute to the relationship. Right. Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, and I, I would say, Bob, you know, that. I think a, a piece of this too speaks to a, a high sense of self-awareness, you know, knowing that I prefer a certain type of environment to lead, but this environment I'm getting ready to walk into as a partner in a collaborative structure doesn't call for that. So I'm either going to have to adjust myself to be more intense, less intense, and I'm aware of how to make that adjustment because I know my own preferences as a leader, this is where solid self-leadership comes into place. And, and I do talk about in the chapter the three components of self-leadership, which is cognitive strategies, behavioral strategies, and self-rewards. At any given time, you have to balance those three components of self-leadership to fit perfectly as best as you can in a collaborative relationship. And it starts with self-awareness. Yeah, so under self-leadership, there are three principles, cognitive, behavioral, and natural rewards. Cognitive strategies deal with how you think and the strategies you come up in your mind. One of the most uh, normalized examples used is when you're playing a game of chess or any game of strategy, you don't play for the next move. You play for the next three to five moves ahead. And when it comes to influencing yourself at the workplace or within a collaborative environment, it's healthy for you to plan your next three to five or more steps so that you can understand what's happening in the environment. That way you're not caught flat footed when something arises. Secondly, once you develop a couple of cognitive strategies or approaches to resolve a situation or to ingratiate yourself in a situation, you now have to act upon it. This is where behavioral strategies come into play. Um, oftentimes, uh, a lot of folks uh, allow themselves to dream out a solution to a scenario that they develop, which is good and healthy, and that's part of the cognitive approach. But they get frozen with the actual practice of it because now it has to move from conceptual uh, thinking to reality. 
And what we understand in terms of self-leadership is that the best way to navigate through behavior strategies is to begin the act, the act of practicing, practicing what you've developed in your mind. It won't be a perfect rollout of what you envision because it never is. But the moment you start practicing, you start to see yourself realizing more and more the reality of what you came up in your mind, came up with in your mind. And then lastly, natural rewards speaks to how what happens along the journey that makes you feel satisfied that you've taken this journey. Okay. So if you're going on this journey of a collaborative relationship, you've determined who you want to partner with and how you want to be a partner, then you start to act on it. The natural reward is what relationships have I developed out of this collaborative structure? Any resources come out of this? Have I become more smarter? Have I changed or evolved? Have my relationships deepened? Have I diversified my network? Those are natural rewards that come along the way of the journey. Beyond removing the zero sum of the situation, there are other benefits that are tangible and intangible that you start to see as a result of uh, self-leadership. Yeah. But I will also say that, you know, it requires you to think more broadly about what you want to get out of a situation. It can't be in a collaborative structure, I want more money from my organization. While that's important, it, it, that can't be the only focus. There have to be other things that you're trying to get out of this. Perhaps your organization is stale in its strategy and in its creative thought. Is that something you want to get out of this collaborative relationship? How to think differently? How to think outside the box? Uh, are there partners that you've been dying to work with? And they're going to be at this new collaborative table. Is that something you want to get out of it? Uh, perhaps there's a misperception of your agency and you want to correct it. And the, one of the most effective ways to correct it is for you to be present at this collaborative table. Th those things are beyond money. And when you look at those other rewards, it changes your approach to how you're going to uh, walk into that relationship. Right. The cognitive changes and the behavior changes. In a, in a zero-sum environment where communities are looking to remove the struggle of always being on a losing end, it's the same. Whether you're an underserved, under-resourced community, yes, there's quite good reason to be bitter and upset. But in order to change it, you have to walk into a collaborative environment with funders and government and other stakeholders wanting something more than just money. And liberation and justice, whatever, however you define that. What else can you get out of it? Can you get new ways of thinking out of this relationship? Can you better understand other stakeholders and your governmental counterparts so you can understand how to play the game or how to shift strategies when necessary? Natural rewards has to be about more than just what can I get to satisfy me in the moment. It has to be a broader approach towards this broader vision. And according to this chapter that I wrote, it's collaborative and inclusive leadership.
Right. Yes. I think both. I think both. I think, you know, if you think about a collaborative structure in terms of a marriage, it, it requires commitment, coordination, trust, uh, communication, conflict resolution. I think if you define a business relationship, it's the same. If you define a relationship between elected official and his or her constituents, it's the same. It's the same principles. In a collaborative structure, it, these things must be at the center for it to it, uh, survive and thrive but also to your point these things do emanate from a collaborative structure and, and what i mean by that is those things become more strengthened as a result of the relationship evolving and thriving so while yeah you start with the intent to commit to meeting and on a regular basis and sharing resources the commitment deepens as you start to see the benefit of us bringing together both of our resources to do something, that commitment tightens up. Same thing with coordination, trust, communication, etc. So it both should be in the beginning and it should strengthen as a relationship goes forward. Well, the collaborative, which is a fictitious name of an organization that I actually did do a case study of, um, was a representation of an organization I had a chance to observe and participate in um, over the course of a, a year. And I noticed that in that particular collaborative, they, 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 they portrayed everything that I talked about in this chapter. They were the very essence of what it means to be collaborative and to remove the zero-sum uh, issue within the community they were serving. So for me, the case study just goes through everything I wrote in the chapter in terms of what it takes to be collaborative, to distribute responsibility across the board, to have uh, self-leaders who are included in the process from top to bottom, uh, to have the elements of a collaborative structure from uh, com commitment, coordination, trust, uh, communication, and conflict resolution, and being able to, to enter into a business partnership and relationship that truly adds value. So for me, that particular collaborative was just the culmination of what does it look like on the ground when they work together, when they share resources, when they assist and support each other. And to the point you made in your previous question, 
they started with these things, but then those things became much more stronger. And to this day, this particular collaborative uh, is still working together, still supporting each other, still a part of um, the network that they've created to support the community that they're serving. Yeah, I think so. I think it, 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 your question presupposes that it requires a single visionary leader. In some cases, that works. There are circumstances when there's more than one who get together and say, hey, let's create something. Right. And regardless of whether it's one or many leaders, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, says we need to create a collaborative structure. The concept that you're putting forward is still relevant. And that is there needs to be a vision for this. Some way, somehow, whether it's led by one, led by a group or, or whatever, there needs to be a vision for a group of us to come together around a collective cause. What we've noticed in the nonprofit community, and you'll see this in a for-profit community and other communities as well, is that most communities can be very cannibalistic in their approach and in their operations. They can uh, create new businesses, new churches, new organizations for the sake of competing and wanting to do something slightly different. And at the end of the day, you, you end up with thousands of nonprofits within a small sphere within a city or, or thousands of churches. And while I get the all competing for the same client base, while I get it, <clears throat> what they tend to forget, and this is what funders are reminding them of, is that while you're competing, a lot of you guys do some of the same things. There's a lot of overlap in processes and procedures and program delivery and resources etc and wouldn't it be easier if somehow some way you put egos aside and begin to work together because there's a lot of relatability to what you do and how you do it certainly certainly Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. But but you're 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 getting at what the issue is, and that is giving up control. Yeah. Giving up um brand recognition, giving up market share for the sake of efficiency. I want to be known as the agency that does X, Y, and Z. And to give up power or resources or to blend power and resources appears to be a threat to a lot of organizations. What I've been learning and discovering over the past couple of years as I've, as I've worked to lead and develop collaboratives is that when you invest your resources, your money can go much, much further than it could go if you just kept it in-house. And what organizations don't realize, and I hope some are starting to realize this, is that when you invest in a collaborative structure, your money, 
your time, your resources leads to a group outcome that are much greater than what you can do on your own. And if that's true, then those outcomes and those results can be counted as your results, which bolsters your performance because that performance would have not been achieved if it wasn't for your investment in money and in resources. Therefore, the, the big picture is look at collaborative structures as an investment to extend your capacity. Whether you're a small community struggling to get uh, access to resources, whether you're a nonprofit looking to get off the ground, whether you're a government institution trying to do more for more people, regardless of the rationale for your need to remove the zero sum, the investment in a collaborative can make a difference in ending that zero sum. A pe- I've heard this example. And I love this. It's one thing to own 100 percent of a grape, but it's another thing to own 10 percent of a watermelon. The substance and the return on investment is completely different. And how much different would the life of your community be if you own 10 percent of a watermelon? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think to keep a collaborative going, I think those principles I listed earlier are important. But what makes it hard are two things, quick things that come to mind. Number one, people change. So the difficulty of collaborative structures is when you have people representing organizations attending the collaborative table, sometimes those people leave for various reasons, whether they change jobs or they get promoted and there's no longer a responsibility. And having that continuity transition from one person to the next within an organization you don't control is a super big challenge. The other challenge that I've noticed is that market conditions change. The needs change. Market conditions change. So the needs of the customer change. uh, Delivery models change. um, Delivery mechanisms change. And the collaborative, because it's a collaborative and not a dictatorship, has to agree to adjust together to meet the needs of the customer and to use new tools. So that can become difficult. And there's no silver bullet that I have to say, this is how you deal with it. The best you can do is remain open and transparent so that when people do change jobs and people change out, there's this access to information of what's been discovered or discussed all this time and that new folks are welcome. But then the other thing in terms of dealing with marketing conditions, I think that <clears throat> the best way to navigate that is to have enough number of folks who are part of the collaborative who can speak to the importance of adjusting to the market conditions and how we can do it together. You know, here are a couple of case studies of how we've done this. 
Here are a couple of lessons learned that we have from our organization that have shown how we've navigated it. And this is what we can do to alleviate the challenge of making this change. How about we test out this idea over a 60, 90 day period and do an evaluation then? That's the best you can hope for, because as we've been talking about, collaborative structures are this distributed approach to leadership and decision making. It's not the most efficient. It can take a while to get folks on board. That's that's the downside of collaborative structures. But you have to be willing to deal with that if you want to move the entire collaborative network towards dealing with the changes of people and marketing conditions. <clears throat> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is true. You know, I, I I believe that uh, the nonprofit community can teach anyone anything. And in terms of this chapter and how it influences uh, other industries, um, the lessons of collaboration cannot be overstated. In our government, both in the UK and the US, more collaboration is to be desired. I want to see more collaborative ideas between the two major parties to develop solutions that doesn't perfectly fit me, but fits the collective in my town, in my state, in this country, because we all benefit from collective solutions. I want to see more organizations for profit and nonprofit collaborate on ideas to uh, solve major problems that are ailing uh, many people in our community. I want to see technological companies come together to develop joint solutions to fix problems that are still bothering us today. And I believe, as this book was created for, <clears throat> that the collaborative structures in nonprofit communities has a, a distinct and unique relevance to communities around the world who feel that they are forgotten, who feel that they are under-resourced. The idea of collaborating is not a bad thing. It should be embraced and explored. I think folks can be scared to come out of their tents and come out of their corners because they don't want to be uh, ridiculed by people who are from their tribe, if you will. But the reality is, if there's such a huge need that your community needs to be resolved, the best way it appears, the most effective way it appears to resolve that is to collaborate with people who can help you get there. Obviously, if you're still struggling, doing it by yourself is, isn't working. No matter what type of structure you're talking about, no matter the industry you're talking about, whether it's professional or personal or communal, collaboration is a healthy thing. 
And there have been ideas that I have gathered from collaborating with partners and friends and stakeholders that have transformed me as a professional, transformed my own organization, transformed my leadership. One of the most um, one of the things I love to do is I have an IT background and I love to keep up with all the technological advances that are happening, even though I don't spend time actually practicing IT per se. But I love looking at the way IT professionals and tech companies think because they think about efficiency. They think about reducing redundancies. They think about making things better and more um, effective for end users. For me, that inspires me to do the same thing for the services I create and design and lead for the agency that I'm a part of. How do we reduce redundancies? How do we improve efficiencies? How do we improve quality? And it has nothing to do with technology. It has everything to do with service delivery. For me, collaborating uh, intellectually with tech companies and with uh, real estate companies, which I love to watch them, with businessmen who I, I love to watch their moves as well, collaborating intellectually helps me become a better executive and a better service provider. And that's just one example in my own personal life how that works. If, in fact, there are folks in zero-sum communities who took on that same mantra and mentality, how much more advanced, how quickly can their community evolve if they just simply collaborated? Yes, totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it, it took a minute to process, but yes, got it. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully someone's listening. Bob, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Okay. I have to check. I've only been here for four years, so I'm still learning my way around Connecticut. I often still have to pull out a map, but I will find out how far Guilford is away from where I am. So I got connected with them back in 2011 um, when I started my doctoral program and it was talked up by my professors. And so certainly as a first year student, we all signed up for it and I've been connected ever since. Okay. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Not not this year. Um, I, the last one I went to was a couple years ago in Colorado. Um, so since then I've had a, uh, another child, and so uh, that has taken priority in terms of uh, how far I can travel and how often I can travel. But the plan is to get back to the conference in the next year or two. Yes. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, friend. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Thanks for hanging in there. Um, we had a one-hour long conversation with Bob. And uh, as he indicated, he himself wrote a book chapter uh, in the book, um, Removing the Zero Sum for uh, Communities Through Collaboration. And um, let me actually get you the actual book chapter. Let me be more accurate, guys. Hold on one second. We've been here this long, so you guys can hold on a few more minutes as I find this uh, this title. Sorry, it's taking me so long. All right, so. Um, so as I, as Bob indicated, he wrote a book chapter for Breaking the Zero-Sum Game, Transforming Societies Through Inclusive Leadership, and I wrote a book chapter as well. The book chapter is called Exploring Inclusive Leadership Through the Lens of a Collaborative Structure. Uh, I encourage you to check out that book. Check out that book chapter that I wrote. It does indicate and speak to a lot of the principles that uh, I uh you know that I espouse, and so certainly this uh, this book chapter is a part of my uh, philosophy around leadership. So hope you enjoy and uh, stay connected, guys. And uh, this is Dr. William Clark here for Leadership Conversations. Just had a podcast uh, with someone interviewing me about my book chapter. Look forward to connecting with you guys soon. God bless. <laughs>